Welcome to Cinema Journal Presents ACA Media. I am Christine Becker. And I am Michael Kackman. You ACA Media aficionados may connect October with the, you know, very scary special ACA Media episodes. <laughs> yes. But this time we decided life is scary enough. Oh, life is way, way, way scary enough. And life is like surreal and weird enough. Like I feel like at this point we couldn't even do a gimmick episode that just nope. wouldn't you know, that would stand up to the craziness of, of real life right now. So if you're really looking for that, you can just turn us off and listen to the news for an hour. Right. Or you can listen to the previous ones. It's been, you know, at least a year since the last one. There's so. been some wackiness. Yeah. So if you've missed that, go check out uh, our previous October episodes. Um, which actually this might end up being probably in your, um, whatever, your devices in November because that's it's that time of year. You know, usually I fall apart. Uh, we have 15, uh, 15 week semesters here plus finals week at Notre Dame. And usually it's like week 12 or 13. That's when I start, you know, the wheels start coming off. It's the, like week 17 already. Though, the, isn't it? Yeah. Well, the wheels are, are coming off. And, and it's partly the, you know, I've had the added um, joy of the Cubs playing so much Ooh. more baseball than I'm used to. So let's get some run. Let's go get those bats going, Michael. Get those yeah. bats going. Well, last night wasn't the best, but we'll, you know. No, so yeah, you're, yeah we were speaking. Uh, we just had Game One of the World Series, and it didn't go so well for the Cubs. So we'll see. But I, I will say the um, I obviously want them to win the World Series very badly. But the joy I felt on Saturday when they clinched the NLCS, and you know, I called my mom and talked with her through the ninth inning. And you know, my mom's a lifelong fan. Like there, there was just a special joy from that evening. Um, I obviously hope to replicate it with the World Series victory, but there was there that's a, that's a special day. That's a good thing. All right. Yeah. So so, but the problem is I've been watching so much baseball, and the wheels are falling off of of work. But that's okay. We can put them back on. We have bolts. Okay, that's what we're gonna do. All right. So we've got some good stuff this episode. We are continuing our election special focus uh, with a conversation uh, Bill had actually Bill. Uh, over at Denison University, spoke to a couple of colleagues of his about global satire. So it's not specifically about the election, but about the concept of global political satire and some really fascinating stuff here. You know, I have to say that um, some of the more interesting electoral stuff that I've looked at lately, and of course I'm, you know, I'm obsessive like everybody else, uh, but looking at some of the international cartoons mm. about the U.S. election, I know this isn't necessarily exactly what they're talking about, but... Right. Um, but um, it's actually really refreshing to think of ourselves as being part of a world and not just a national political community. Yeah, definitely. So get to hear uh, more about that with our first interview. And for our second segment, I had a conversation with Cynthia Myers uh, about her recent article about advertising and the Red Scare. So we'll get to that in just a moment, but should we start with uh, Bill's piece? Yeah, meanwhile, I will be um, trying to bolt the wheels back on. Excellent. I'm here with two of my Denison colleagues. Kirk Combe is professor of English and the author or editor of many works, including, most relevantly, Theorizing Satire, Essays in Literary Criticism. He's also an author of fiction. 
Sangeet Kumar is Assistant Professor of Media Studies in the Communication Department at Denison, who has published widely on political satire, including in the anthology News Parody and Political Satire Across the Globe, edited by Jeffrey Baim and Jeffrey P. Jones. Together, Kirk and Sangeet co-edited a special issue of International Communication Gazette in 2015 on news parody and political satire across the globe. So we wanted to talk to them about political satire in an international context. Sangeet, Kirk, welcome to Acamedia. Thank you, Bill. Great to be here. Thanks. So I wanted to start with a little bit of an overview of the special issue. What was the impetus for that, and what were you trying to accomplish with that? Well, um, as you just mentioned, I was part of a, pro a similar project earlier. As being part of the process, it really like allowed me to see how global this phenomenon is. In the process of writing that essay, I had actually met up with Kirk, whom I had known as you know the expert on campus in the English department, who had you know this long trajectory of studying satire and parody. One idea that emerged is why don't we focus our special issue just on the web? It was also a time just after when we started talking about it, right? Just after the Arab Spring, like things were happening globally, right? And many of these things were actually happening first on the web or because of the web. So we realized that that is a very topical and pressing kind of global event. And focusing our special issue on that would, you know, allow us to kind of add to that conversation. I think it turned out well, yeah. Yeah, and for me, it was uh, really an expansion of my interests and 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 what I do in that I was uh, going to be working in a new a new discipline in media and communication and that's really really interesting and it's you know your guys's field is so into cultural studies and I just that's what I do in my own work dealing with literature and then it it seemed apparent that um, there were some ideas about satire that were maybe a bit dated in ways that as it was being generally used in, in this field. So I thought I might be able to add something there. Plus, I've studied satire, you know, my own areas, early, early modern British. So starting from the 17th century. And so I've studied it mainly in, in print, but also recently in film and in say, cable news, that sort of thing. But uh, studying it particularly on the web was, was kind of new to me, and that, that was very cool to do that. And then to see all these non-Western traditions of satire that came up through the articles, that was really fascinating because I suspected satire was widespread amongst all sorts of cultures, but just to, to see it in every, every sort of cultural iteration was, was very interesting. So what are some of the things that we need to be thinking about in new ways when we put satire together with global, together with internet? With all due respect to all other media forms that have come before, we can safely argue that this is the one media technology that is probably the most difficult to regulate by governments in power, right? Who have always had a stake or always have, have had an interest in regulating speech especially political subversive speech. So the internet by its very nature, right, because of the technology and its network, diffuse network architecture, makes it very difficult to block or stop or erase things, right? Like you can block one website, it keeps mirroring itself. Another. So that is the one, the first fact about the nature of the medium itself. You know, it amplifies the effect of the satire, which the content obviously is already political, but the medium, when it comes together with this unregulatable, if I may use the word medium, 
it kind of you know makes it even more subversive so that's the technology part in terms of the globalization part I would say that there is one thing that emerged from our conversation, and I think Kirk was very instrumental in this, that we did not want other scholars looking at satire on other parts of the world and kind of just saying, oh, you know, so these are nice local versions of Colbert and John Stewart. So John Stewart and Stephen Colbert are global figures, thanks again to the internet. But, you know, it's easy to kind of just look at this as this process of global flow where, you know, everyone is looking at them and trying to do their versions of it. That's, in fact, was part of the brief we sent out to the contributors that we would like to see what are the ways in which the local historical cultural context informs these different iterations of satire instead of just looking at them as, you know, copies or hybrid forms of, you know, Stewart and Colbert. And that's, I think, what we got eventually is that we, we had a lot of that you know, local historical context and flavor coming through in the essays. And that was our goal. So for those who haven't had a chance to read the essays yet, can you give a couple of examples of this global form of satire, this global medium is finding very local, very specific, very culturally contextual expression? One, for example, our piece on China was written by Dr. Gobin Yang and, and Dr. Min Jiang, and they talk about some very um, unique things happening on the Chinese web, you know, like a relay chain poetry where someone starts it and then different people in different parts or different places on the web kind of, you know, keep adding to it. That would be an example of a very local contextual phenomenon that is very specific to China. Similar things may be happening, but in that sense, that historical thing which finds expression on the internet in China is one example of something that is very local and unique. Well, interesting, like in, in Liam Echo's piece on Africa, he was looking at political cartooning which is, had come to it from the West, but the way it was being worked was sort of a, a local African approach. Sidebar, there's a lot of work to be done, I think, on looking into all the satiric traditions from all these cultures around the world. I mean, I'm, I, I only have scratched the surface of the Western tradition, you know, so there's all these others, and that, that was quite exciting to, to see out there. And in Echo's piece in specific, he talks about the kind of Western tradition of the jester's privilege, right? That the jester is allowed to get away with saying stuff. And there's a, a kind of equivalent in the cultures that he was studying in sub-Saharan Africa. And it didn't seem like exactly the same thing, but it's but the, the contrast and the comparison was really illustrative there. Yes, yes, yeah. I also appreciated the way that, coming back to the medium specificity, Again, in his piece specifically, that this cartooning, which is a print form we think of, is finding new political potency on the web. Can you talk a little bit about that? Right. And uh, new audiences, new life, new kind of, you know, trajectories, right? And it originates in the old kind of legacy print media. But copies of that, of those cartoons, you know, then come onto the web and then they begin to circulate in, in their own way, right? So even if the government is able to censor the newspaper, once it gets on the web, it kind of has its own territory and, you know, it's moving in that territory. And so the specificity of the medium becomes very important. So that question of authoritarian control and censorship comes up several times in various pieces in the issue. Uh, there's the piece on Morocco by Mohamed el-Marzouki, Babak Rahimi's piece on Iran, also in the Sub-Saharan Africa piece by Echo. And 
I thought that was in strange contrast to some of the discourse that is currently circulating in the U.S. about satire, how it's of questionable effectiveness. You know, when Sarah Palin goes on Saturday Night Live and matches with Tina Fey's Sarah Palin, how subversive is it really? How much are we really poking at power and challenging power and so forth? And so part of me is thinking, if I were an authoritarian dictator and I were to read your special issue, I would think okay, well, let's let them say what they want to say and letting them let off a little steam with satire may not be so threatening. That's certainly what the Western example seems to show. I would wonder if you would agree with that. What would you advise our, our authoritarian dictator? Well, I mean, that's, that's the big question of any, of any cultural production, you know, is, is it going with the power discourse or is it going counter to the power discourse? And, uh, Different people can see it in, you know, in different ways. I, I think I like what Sangeet said about the web having this unregulated and unregulatable quality to it. But yeah, when things get domesticated, it, it can lose its punch. But we also tend to forget that a lot of satire is used or has been used in the past for the domestification of things, you know, and, and for the power discourse. I mean, there were... Charles II of England, for example, had John Dryden writing official satire for him for his political side and point of view. So uh, satire can be used either way. And I, and I think satire, modern satire, early modern and modern satire really shifted to one when, you know, we in, in England anyway, in the Western tradition, we, we get the political parties actually starting up and we get the, the feudal system breaking down and the, the modern system coming into being. Before, satire was a rather dicey prospect because medieval satire tends to be more tame and sort of for the status quo, whereas you get to early modern satire and it starts to partake in, in the factional wrangle that starts going on. But at any rate, you have this sort of very civilized discourse going on to this polished discourse, especially in, in uh, verse satire and early modern verse satire, where masked is the, the savagery of it is is the attack of it. And again, I talk about John Dryden. He has, he has a long, way too long uh, piece on the original uh, of, of satire talking about satiric theory. He likens it to, it should be like uh, a, a rapier cut uh, that takes a man's head off but leaves the, the, the head standing on the shoulders, you know, this sort of blank look on your face. So really good satire is not just butchering somebody. It is doing it with with wit and with craft and maybe so well that they don't even really know how badly they're being satirized, that sort of thing. There's also the, and it's kind of connected to this a little bit, I guess what's been called the Archie Bunker problem. When you say that it's possible that somebody doesn't even realize that they're being satirized, that the right can embrace an Archie Bunker and think that he's mocking the liberals. In fact, also there are studies of people, you know, watching Stephen Colbert and right, actually thinking he's a conservative talk show host, like not getting the garb. And so it can fail, right? And the closer it is to the real thing, the smarter it is, Then, but then also the more difficult it is to decipher for certain kinds of audiences. So I'll say, like, if you get out of the American context, and if I talk about the Indian context, it's surprisingly how much satire exists on both sides of the political spectrum, which is interesting that, you know, at least on the Indian web, satire, parody, and other forms of comedy are as 
potent a tool for the kind of right conservative side as they are for the, you know, and obviously this has things to do with the specificities of Indian politics. But I personally don't think that satire in itself lends itself to a particular kind of politics. So coming back then to the question of authoritarian regimes, I mean, I know that you've studied, Sangeet, globalization and global networks and the technology and the, and the issues of censorship on, online and so forth. How much longer can we expect satire to be, and political critique to be safe from authoritarian regimes? Is this something that's just a matter of them chasing it down and shutting it off? Or do you have an, a certain optimism that the internet will continue to remain a space for this type of political critique? Yeah, it's a great question. And in some ways, I kind of, you know, get reassurance from Kirk's work, right? So he's studied the history of satire, which has, I'm sure, had many attempts to kind of, you know, clamp down on it, but has thrived, survived, right? It continues to flourish. Interestingly, one of the most interesting pieces that came to our collection was from China. And if there's one country that has tried really hard to regulate speech online, it is China. And yet it is so interesting that the culture of dissent, subversive speech, or even distrust for official government accounts of events that happen in China is so strong on the Chinese web. The more stringent or more strong the efforts of the government are to regulate speech, the more suspicion there is of what the government is saying. And things happen, the government gives us gives an account to the Chinese people, and then immediately, right, the people on the web start from the position of suspicion and begin to try to make jokes and ridicule and basically become detectives to get the real information. So I am optimistic that no matter how repressive governments become, like this form of subversive speech will always survive and thrive. Although something that emerges in even in the intro that you guys wrote for the special issue is that it allows for rapid dissemination and all this, but it also makes makes it more visible. So that issue of visibility makes me, I guess, a little less optimistic than you sound. Uh, Talk me off the ledge. (laughs) Well, I think uh, satire is kind of like if you grab a handful of sand, you know, you're going to you're going to grab some of it, but a lot's going to slip through your fingers and that sort of thing. So even old clunky like 18th century example is uh, the theater was getting far too subversive, and in 1737, uh, the government imposed the Licensing Act and really cracked down on political speech in the theater and political satire in the theater. And uh, a, a key playwright at that point was Henry Fielding, and he just said, okay, I'm not going to write plays anymore, and he started to write great big long novels, and a lot of which have a lot of political commentary in them. So I think people are good at switching mediums, switching tactics, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I mentioned before the critique of repressive tolerance or the idea that satire is made safe through its expression, that the political critique is blunted. It's also the critique of the carnivalesque, right? Well, let them make fun of the king as long as they go back to work on Monday. And in your essay, you're taking issue with that. You're sort of suggesting that that's a kind of modernist perspective, and you're advancing what you call a postmodernist perspective of what satire actually accomplishes. So can you tell us a little bit about that? In the 17th, 18th century, and then later on in, say, the scholarship on satire, which in and of itself is kind of interesting, but there was this concept of satire being this very stable form that 
promotes good behavior and attacks bad behavior, and that there are absolute sort of moral principles that, that the satirist is there to deliver. And it's all, it's all very platonic, and there's truth, and, and satire gets to it, sort of by a weird way, but it's not... It, it's it's a form of philosophy. It's a form of moral sermon. You know that that sort of thing. And indeed, a lot of medieval philosophy has uh, not medieval satire has that feel to it. It's kind of, it's rather preachy and kind of boring. So when people started to do some more study on satire, um, literary theorists, especially in the 40s and 50s and up into the 60s, it was very sort of a new critical approach that new criticism really doesn't want to deal that much with satire because new criticism likes to remove works from their context, which is impossible for satire. But when it did deal with satire, it was sort of these satires gave stable moral principles and that sort of thing. And, and my own view is, is satire is just opens up sort of a Derridean free-for-all. It's just it deconstructs and uh, it's based on deconstruction and it's based on all truths being provisional. And so Colbert's notion of truthiness is is exactly what we're, I think satire is doing. It is, it is it's throwing us in the big debate and that there is no, say, absolute good or absolute bad or absolute truth or untruth or any political position that isn't in some way, shape or form a construction. So it's all that postmodern stuff that I just see satire reveling in, really. It, it's monstrous, it's deconstructive, it will subvert itself. But that doesn't say it doesn't have a serious purpose or doesn't put forth a serious argument for better ways of behaving versus not so good ways of behaving in the realm of, say, social justice and, you know, good stuff like that. So I think it's a very interesting question, right? Like, what are the limits that I think was the intent of your question, right? And social structures have had a, a center of power and then people who are ruled by it, right, have some relationship with it. So what are the means that people have to resist this center of power, right? So obviously violence is not an option, right? We've kind of moved beyond that. So it's in it has to happen in the realm of the public sphere through argumentation, discourse, critique. And I see satire as a form of argumentation. And I feel like the emergence of Colbert and, and uh, John Stewart happens at a time in the American context when those old modes of argumentation that repeatedly occurred in talk shows on you know, CNN and Fox were kind of reaching their own limits. When each side knew the facts, everyone knew which side was where, and yet it was like a ritual played out over and over again. And so satire kind of emerges as this new form of argumentation, Colbert says, I'm going to become you to show how ridiculous you are, right? And I think that it created a new form of argumentation in the public sphere. And you may be right that now that has also kind of, you know, reached its limit. But I'm sure there's going to be a new version or iteration of it soon. But yeah, I do think that if societies decide that democracy is the way to go, then the public sphere becomes the site of struggle. And so parody and satire become one of the many tools. I mean, that's not the only tool. Obviously, fact-based Habermasian argumentation is always going to be there, but that also has its limits because oftentimes facts don't convince people because they're so well entrenched in what they believe that facts apparently right, don't meet the criteria of truthiness or whatnot. So, yeah, I do think that parody and satire should not be considered as the solution for everything or as, as the only one amongst the many options that exist in the public sphere. So last question, what are the takeaways? So a couple of things that we learned. 
One is we started out with the project, or in some ways the intention of decentering this thing, right? The presumption that there's this long history of, of satire and parody in the Western world, and so that becomes kind of the starting point for every conversation about parody and satire anywhere in the world. And we wanted to decenter that a little bit to say that no, actually, you know, there are these very deep historical traditions of satire and parody in different parts of the world, which remain unseen and unheard of, precisely because of that hegemony, right? And I think the second lesson that we learned is that I think this is the Foucauldian point that power always generates its own opposite, and that no matter how oppressive, no matter how totalitarian governments there may be, there will always be forms of resistance, you know, that may be invisible, may be underground. So I think what the internet does is brings overground cultures that probably in the pre-internet world would have remained underground, right? So I think it, it's both a moment of hope or a sign of hope, as well as something to keep thinking about. Yeah, I would very much agree. We just saw hegemonies and perpetual crisis it just that's the nature of hegemonies you know they're, they're going to try to be stable but you, that never works you know and so satire is one of many tools and I like what Sangeet said before about it's a powerful tool of argumentation in that it brings other things to the argumentative table not just good reasons and, and laying out a strong case but also some fun making some ridicule some parody some and and yes the danger is overloading the the, the the reader or the viewer of satire with so many messages coming at you and maybe so many layers but uh, it's that richness that allows for a lot of different ways to to counteract power excellent all right we will leave it there Kirk Combi Sangeet Kumar thank you very much for joining us on Acamedia thank you very much Bill thank you both for inviting us So I think that was a really instructive interview and conversation to listen to, and especially at this moment, because I think there is something so all-consuming about our election that we can easily forget. There are yeah. other countries, there are other you know political systems, there are other forms of satire and other ways of um, you know kind of considering how satirical content could play a cultural role. So I found that a actually a really refreshing conversation, even though it was some about like dictatorships and stuff like that. Um, I found it a really refreshing conversation and a, an insightful escape from our really self-enclosed political world. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, really a nice contribution. Mm-hmm. Well, um, we then have one more interview coming. So our next episode, we're going to put you back in the American bubble with uh, Susan Omer, our colleague here at Notre Dame. She's going to talk to us about the history of elections. Of course, she's teaching to two different constituencies, a group of freshmen and then a senior seminar. So I can't wait to ask her about how it uh, when she was remarking the uh, freshmen, some of them, this is their first election. And this, you know, and they're saying, like, is it always like this? There was one student who actually asked or, or he said, so people always question the um, that elections are rigged, right? That's just a thing that happens every time. No, not no, like that. Not, no. no. Um, but she is going to, she was saying the next section of her course is going to be uh, on, quote, messy elections. So 1800, and she named out a few other years. So we'll get to talk to her. And you'll get to hear that then about a month from now. We'll do it after the election. So we'll see what happens and then have Susan Omer tell us, you know, kind of take us through history and give us some parallels about um, things in the past that might help us understand our present and our future. I am looking forward to that. And in part because, maybe in large part, because at that point, um, 
this election will have been filed away in the record books. Yes, I Be can't. Glad to see it go. I did. I, I do imagine. have to share one uh, one of the best. Uh, this was a Twitter joke from Southpaw Jones, a musician in in Austin, Texas, and um, he had a really really great uh, Twitter characterization um, of this whole election process, which was 2008 GOP. We need to do some soul searching. 2012 GOP. We really need to do some soul searching. 2016. Look what we found. Oh. I know it's not nice. No, but, but there's, you know, getting back to the, the satire topic there, I, I am impressed by the creativity, which with many people are approaching this impending nightmare. Yeah. So, all right. There's hope there. Right, exactly. Well, before we get to any of that, you have an interview for I us to listen to. I do have an interview for us to listen to. I spoke with Cynthia Myers about her recent Cinema Journal article about advertising, the ad industry, and the Red Scare and the Blacklist. And here's the thing. You know how we all kind of teach the Blacklist in some kind of way? It comes up in uh, sometimes in film classes, sometimes in, in TV classes. And there's this sense that these machinations are going on and the blacklist is is it's never entirely clear whether or not whether it is a literal list of names mm-hmm. um i mean we, we've all probably seen red channels and that kind of stuff um or whether it's just sort of this figurative list that that um that circulates as the dark knowledge of the of the studios and the networks and the ad agencies mm-hmm. and here's the thing she found the list a list. A smoking gun. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The historian's dream. Yeah. She found it, and she's doing great work. So give it a listen. Cynthia Myers is an associate professor of communication at the College of Mount St. Vincent. She is the author of A Word from Our Sponsor, Admin, Advertising, and the Golden Age of Radio. And she is one of the most prominent historians of of advertising agencies and admin in the uh, radio and TV era. Cynthia, welcome to Acomedia. Thanks for having me, Michael. Uh, it's it's a really it's a really great opportunity to have you here. We are here to talk about your recent Cinema Journal article, advertising the Red Scare and the Blacklist, BBDO, U.S. Steel, and Theater Guild on the Air, nineteen forty five to nineteen fifty two. Uh, it's a fascinating topic and a really really interesting article. I'm so glad to see you dig in on on the mechanics of how the Blacklist works. So much of it seems to kind of operate as this kind of lore in broadcast history. Yes, I, I would say that um, the myth making around the blacklisting era um, makes it very difficult to actually find out what was really happening then. Mm-hmm. Um, so memoirs and reminiscences tend to repaint, um, you know, intentions and motivations and actual activities. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's really important to try to find actual contemporaneous documentation. And this was the first time I was able to find actual contemporaneous documentation from inside an ad agency about why, um, you know, they were justifying blacklisting. Um, and that hadn't, uh, I hadn't seen anything like that anywhere before. Um, the only other evidence of how the ad agencies were blacklisting during this era of the late 40s and all the way through the 50s, um, was based on oral histories. Uh, John Cogley, who was a researcher, went around and mm-hmm. talked to people 
And um, I've since done further research um, after I finished this article and discovered that, um, you know, people talked to him and misrepresented what they were doing. Um, sure, because everybody wants to kind of rewrite the history to make themselves come out as ethical and morally sound, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And even in the moment, even when they were justifying what they were doing, even when they were talking to journalists and researchers like John Cogley, um, as it was happening, they were still re... re um, well, they were whitewashing what they were doing as they were representing it. So contemporaneous internal documents are really the only place uh, where you can actually find out uh, what they yeah. were actually thinking and doing and what actions they were actually taking. And um, in this article, I was able to use some documents from Bruce Barton's papers at the, at the Wisconsin Historical Society, uh, but they were very fragmentary. Um, right. So I, was, I had to piece a lot of different things together to try to figure out what the story was. When you have a, a history that is largely understood through oral history and where everyone is, in most, in most of these um, accounts, everyone is essentially positioning themselves as outside the machine, <laughs> you end up with this vision of the industry as this black box that has that has a, a force and a power all of its own, that the individual people you're speaking with are somehow separate from or alienated from or not in control of. Yes, and I actually think this, this is my major goal in studying the ad industry, is that I think it's been dismissed within media studies as a black box and also as, um, um, as a unitary kind of institution. Mm -hmm. But it was a very conflicted group of institutions and the advertisers, the sponsors, um, were often in conflict with the advertising agencies. And advertising agencies often disagreed with each other about what was appropriate. Um, and so, you know, most of my work has to do with those conflicts and trying to um, actually uh, unwind them and figure out what was going on. Um, and I think it's really important for media historians in general to understand that it that these were not. Um, these were not people who all had the same idea about things. And they, yeah. and in the moment, also, they didn't necessarily always know what the right thing was to do. And so the ambivalences, the ambiguities, and the um, you know, the internal debates over why they were doing what they were doing is what I think is really fascinating. And I think, yeah. and I think can help us understand why something like blacklisting happened. From our perspective now, it just seems outrageous and wrong. And there, there's nobody out there defending blacklisting anymore. So it's not like there's a political debate anymore about whether it was a good thing or a bad thing. And mm -hmm. so I think it's really easy to go back and say, well, all these people were doing these really bad things, right? And so then you can just leave it at that, right? right. But what I was trying to do is try to understand these rationales um, and not just dismiss them as a bunch of, you know, you know, red scare crazed nitwits who didn't know what they were doing or why they were doing it and just caught up in the moment. Um, and, and instead, what I try to do is I try to connect it with these um, larger ideas about how you speak to your audiences, um, what corporations were trying to communicate mm -hmm. about themselves, um, uh, what they thought about their own audiences, what they assumed their audiences' responses were going to be to things, and their assumptions about the power of mass media. They absolutely believed that being on radio or being on television was this opportunity to mold minds. And so when they were then presented with, you know, possi the possibility that maybe they were molding minds in the wrong direction or maybe their efforts at molding minds was going to backfire on them, they just operated from that assumption that they had to fix it. Right? Yeah. And so the way yeah. they fixed it, of course, was entirely 
uh, you know, egregiously wrong, as we all understand now, but this motivation that, you know, they were trying to um, protect these already existing notions they had about the power of media and the power of these sort of uh, beneficent messages that they were trying to send audiences, I think is really important for us to understand um, in order to not just dismiss this as um, a one-off historical event, but mm -hmm. also as something that, uh, you know, will return and can return and is returning in different ways uh, with different discourses in politics and media, as I think right. we can look around and see it around us. It's um, all over the place. Yes, but it, but but we need to remind ourselves always to look back at these larger um, um, assumptions that they were operating under in order to understand some of these specific activities they they actually did. For those who are not quite as familiar with the with the players here, can you just set the stage briefly in terms of the relationships between BBDO, uh, U.S. Steel, and the Theater Guild of the Air? Right. So, um, so Theater Guild on the Air was a radio program that started in 1945, and it was produced by an organization, the Theater Guild, um, which was trying to elevate public taste in theater. So instead of just sort of mm -hmm. cheap commercial Broadway um, entertainment, they were trying to um, bring to the public on a larger scale um, high-quality, highbrow theater. Um, so they got together with U.S. Steel. Now, U.S. Steel is a large corporation that had been involved in strike breaking, um, all sorts of um, antitrust actions. And so it had a really big problem with public relations. Um, think Halliburton. Yes, think Halliburton, think DuPont. Um, so they were constantly fighting off. Monsanto. Yes, they're fighting off attacks from all sorts of. Um, corners for being too big, for being too powerful. And so they were mm -hmm. looking for something that would communicate with the public about um, their desire um, to be seen as a beneficent company that was supporting Americans and was helping America grow, um, was helping develop new technology, um, and, and that they were part of this large American family dedicated to the advancements advancement of all Americans everywhere. Mm -hmm. So they agreed to sponsor the radio program. And remember back in this era that networks really had nothing or very little to do with what radio shows were on the air. Um, instead, the sponsor and its ad agency selected the program, and then they just bought the airtime from the network. Um, and this is something, again, that media historians need to keep in mind, that programming was a function of the sponsors and the ad agencies. Mm -hmm. So the ad agency involved in this was BBDO, um, which stands for Batten, Barton, Durstein, and Osborne. Um, the running joke is that it sounds like a trunk falling downstairs. So we usually just Batten call Barton. them. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Batten, Barton, Durstein, and Osborne. So we usually call them BB, BBDO. Um, one of its founders, Bruce Barton, uh, was really one of the most important figures in 20th century advertising. He pioneered in corporate image advertising in the idea of making ads for companies like General Electric, DuPont, General Motors, that weren't so much about selling products, but more about burnishing the image of the corporation as being a good corporate citizen, mm -hmm. as contributing to advancement and progress, and all sorts of other corporate liberal ideals. And Bruce Barton really is one of the most important corporate liberals, I would say, in the 20th century. 
So he uh, managed to get U.S. Steel to give them some advertising accounts. And in this period in the 1940s, BBDO was in charge of overseeing essentially U.S. Steel's you know, public image. And they mostly worked with um, a man at U.S. Steel, um, this guy named uh, Carlisle McDonald, um, to kind of um, promote these, ideal, these ideas about U.S. Steel as being a good corporate citizen, um, helping promote the war effort during the war, and then after the war, um, promoting labor peace with its steel workers um, mm -hmm. through acknowledging the new union and providing all sorts of corporate welfare, and then um, sponsoring this program, Theater Guild on the Air, which was essentially an employee-targeted public relations strategy. They had over 100,000 employees, and they wanted to bring this culture um, to the public and to the employees as a way of saying, look, you know, we care about you, we care about culture, we care about bringing you something that's going to illuminate and educate you. So mm -hmm. all three of those institutions, the ad agency, BBDO, U.S. Steel, and Theater Guild, all really believed that they had a mission of educating the public and educating them in a way to um, help them learn about good culture as opposed to, you know, bad commercial culture. And so they were all committed to this idea. And so by the time they put on Theater Guild on the air, BBDO, in a very unusual arrangement, allows Theater Guild to control the program. Theater Guild decides which scripts to perform. They're the ones who edit the plays down, and they're the ones who cast the actors in the program. And BBDO mm -hmm. just basically oversees it um, for the sponsor. So they routinely reported to the sponsor um, you know, how Theater Guild was producing the show and what was going on. And the sponsor was very hands-off, unlike some other sponsors. Mm -hmm. um, we, we all know now, oh, those sponsors, they were so um, interfering in these different programs. But in this case, U.S. Steel was buying the artistic integrity of Theater Guild. And so they didn't want to be too involved. They wanted to promote this idea that they were just simply financing and sponsoring this wonderful, you know, highbrow culture. Yeah. One of the things that's so fascinating is that you really capture how this these set this set of relationships essentially overexposes the sponsor, right? I mean, and this is what BBDO was trying to manage, right? This idea that um, that because U.S. Steel had handed off so much of its own credibility to to that of the Theater Guild, they essentially had an, a kind of unmanageable uh, public image issue to deal with, right? Yes, because the entire idea behind radio and television sponsorship was sponsor identification, mm -hmm. that the audience would make a very close, tight association between the sponsor, that brand name, that corporation, and the program. In other words, they would feel this gratitude and goodwill towards the sponsor because of the program. So U.S. Steel was assuming that when people listened to the Theater Guild, they were then thinking, wow, U.S. Steel, such a great company. They're bringing us this wonderful, free cultural experience. And so that tight association was what was seen as the advantage of broadcast advertising over, say, print advertising. So if you read a magazine, mm -hmm. the advertisement is textually separate from the editorial content. And so you don't necessarily say, oh, wow, you know, Kraft Cheese is bringing us this great article in this magazine. It's just a Kraft Cheese ad in the middle of the magazine. Mm -hmm. um, so on radio and television, the assumption was that because the advertiser was 
pr pr providing and producing the content, that that content, that program content, then had had to reflect on the sponsor, and it had to reflect well on the sponsor, um, because the sponsor then was naming the content after itself in many cases. And in this particular case, the sponsor had had allowed the producer to name it after themselves. They called it Theater Guild on the Air. And uh, BBDO was not happy with that. In fact, they continually um, pushed U.S. Steel to put its name in the program so that U.S. Steel would get the benefit of this positive association between this wonderful program um, and the corporation. And eventually mm -hmm. they do. And then by the time the program shifts to television, BBDO succeeds in pushing Theater Guild out of the name of the program altogether. So it uh, becomes the U.S. Steel Hour, right? Exactly. And so that's what most people are aware of. They've, they've mm -hmm. heard of the U.S. Steel Hour, and they're not they're not necessarily aware that it used to be the Theater Guild on the air. And, right. and, the, and the purpose of that was to brand the program more specifically around the sponsor. And also, because of this whole blacklisting issue and the fact that the Theater Guild resisted blacklisting their performers, BBDO wanted to assert you know, the fact that it was actually the sponsor who um, should benefit from this program, and it was the sponsor who ultimately should be in control. And if the Theater Guild did not play ball with BBDO and did not, you know, blacklist as BBDO was asking it to, then they could always switch out the producer, bring in a different theater company, mm -hmm. and it could still be U.S. Steel Hour. And that, that wouldn't harm the brand of the program itself. Right. And then Counterattack and Red Channel shows up, right? Right. And so um, Counterattack um, was a newsletter um, run by some ex-FBI agents, and they like to make all sorts of claims about all sorts of communists all over, you know, in government and education. But they soon focused on broadcasting because they realized that this whole notion of sponsor identification made it really possible for them to reverse uh, this assumption that sponsor identification was a positive process. And so they immediately started attacking sponsors um, for hiring anybody that they deemed subversive. Um, and saying, you know what, this is going to have a negative association with your program, and all this sponsor identification that you're trying to do, it's going to work against you. And so they they published, you know, I don't remember if it was a weekly newsletter, but they published all sorts of claims. And these claims were buried in these newsletters, but they were attacking U.S. Steel, um, gee, beginning in, I can't remember, it was 46 or 47. So counterattack began attacking U.S. Steel, not just for using certain actors, um, on the program, but also they attacked um, the CEO of U.S. Steel for planning to attend some kind of fundraising dinner because um, one of the people involved was somebody that Counterattack claimed was a subversive mm -hmm. or a supporter of communist fronts. And so BBDO and their personnel researcher, Jack Wren, who was basically the guy at BBDO in charge of investigating who was a communist, um, helped the CEO of U.S. Steel pull out of this dinner, and they had to write to counterattack, saying, oh, well, you know, we didn't know that there was any communist association here, and uh, mm -hmm. no, 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 no. So counterattack, um, the, the, the editors at counterattack had been going after U.S. Steel for a while before they, they published Red Channels in 1950. And by the time they published Red Channels in 1950, they'd already made it really clear that they thought U.S. Steel was a good target precisely because it was a large American corporation 
um, that was representing itself as representing American values. And instead of arguing that they were trying to put on communist propaganda, which Counterattack never did argue, instead they argued that by hiring actors who had communist affiliations, that they were essentially sending money to Stalin by paying these actors, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, and so U.S. Steel fought this. They argued, in fact, they wrote letters to counterattack saying, no, we're not supporting Stalin, you know, this is crazy. Um, but by 1950, it was really clear that this attack was successful and BBDO um, kept pressuring U.S. Steel to respond to this attack and take control over the program or at least take control over casting and to um, allow the agency to do its real job, the job that it did for other clients, which was to vet the talent and make sure that mm -hmm. the talent was not going to create a negative association for the corporation. Yeah. And so then you, you argue that um, these kinds of complicated relationships end up contributing essentially to the end of the sponsorship system. I'm going to quote just one brief moment uh, from, your, from your essay when you write, in highlighting the dangers of tight associations between advertisers and entertainment, the post-war Red Scare and controversy over blacklisting also contributed to the long-term decline of sponsorship. So it essentially contributes to the breaking apart of this, this system, right? Yes. Well, you know, there are many, many reasons for the end of sponsorship and the, sure. e the economic incentives uh, were the most important ones, that it was just too expensive. But there were a number of sponsors like U.S. Steel and, and Kraft and um, Firestone who didn't want to give up single sponsorship because they were very committed to this notion of corporate image advertising and they believed that sponsorship was effective for that. And Kraft was very confident that they could do their own anti-communist vetting, right? I mean, they were yes. they were much more out front on that issue. Well, actually, <laughs> they weren't out front publicly, no. Yeah. And and yeah. I have since written a second article about how Kraft was blacklisting on Kraft Television Theater. And I'll get to, uh, we can talk about that in a moment. I would like to, yeah. <laughs> so, um, uh, so what happened, what I believe um, happens is that this assumption of this tight identification between the sponsor you know, at the product and the entertainment begins to be undermined through this entire blacklisting process because uh, part of what happens is as the anti-communists attack the sponsors and the sponsors frantically blacklist like crazy, um, then the sponsors start to notice that actually they're not losing sales, that, that consumers aren't boycotting them because, you know, there was an actress who happened to possibly have participated in some communist activity. Mm -hmm. And they begin to start to question a little bit the strength of that sponsor identification um, and whether or not it actually was affecting sales, both positively or negatively. Um, and then also what starts to happen is once, um, you know, the economic incentives of shifting to a magazine plan of broadcast mm -hmm. advertising where the networks are... Um, function like editors and choose the programs and then the advertisers simply buy pages or minutes of time within those programs is that the advertisers themselves realize that if they have the flexibility to pull an ad from a program and put it in another program, um, then, then they can avoid some of these negative associations. Whereas when they're sponsoring, they're stuck with a program. They're sort of mm -hmm. stuck with those associations. And if the associations turn bad, then, then they're, you know, they're really in a bind, right? They have to cancel a whole program or, you know, take drastic measures. Whereas when they're in the magazine plan, um, 
and a network has a program that you know maybe they are concerned that their their audience might not appreciate, they can just put their ad somewhere else. Just uh, rearrange it. Yeah. yeah, they don't have to then go through this process of trying to figure out you know which associations within the program themselves. They're not. In, they're no longer in charge of trying to create those associations themselves. They get to choose the associations instead. So they get to choose. Well, do we want a western? Do we want a comedy? Do we want both? And they no longer have to then settle on just one set of associations to to promote their product. And that flexibility then um, becomes something that's more desirable after they've been through this kind of trauma, you know, this problem of um, of blacklisting in which these tight associations were assumed and possibly extremely damaging to them. Now, you wrote an afterthoughts piece about this on the on the Cinema Journal website, where it sounds like you got your hands on some really, really interesting follow-up materials, both from BBDO and in the um, J. Walter Thompson papers. Yes. Yeah, so after I sent this article in, I got a travel grant to go back down to Duke University where the J. Walter Thompson papers are. And I had researched uh, my first book there, A Word from Our Sponsor. And mm-hmm. by the way, you, you were on the d- dissertation committee for that. Thank you very much. <laughs> I was. It was a good one, too. <laughs> Thank you. So I went back there and I discovered that the director of the legal department at J. Walter Thompson had kept two secret boxes. And these boxes... Um, had act- I love secret boxes. <laughs> yes, they're, 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 they're not fully cataloged. Um, the secret boxes had actual blacklists in them. Now, I have read many claims that there are no actual blacklists, uh, but that's false. There, the J. Walter Thompson kept a master list of over a thousand names, and they would update this master list every three months or so. Wow. And the master list was based on research, um, not just red channels, but all sorts of other materials that they were sent mm-hmm. by anti-communist activists. So they not only maintain these lists, but with different sponsors, they then were the blacklisters. So I found an, um, documentation from a number of different sponsors, but the sponsor that had the most documentation was Kraft. And what happened was that the advertising director at Kraft Cheese a man named John Platt, um, sends uh, J. Walter Thompson, the radio television department, letters saying, you know, you hired this guy, John Randolph, and he's a communist, and you can't do that anymore. You have to have a checklist. And then J. Walter Thompson, uh, I found memos between the head of the radio television department and the legal department saying, well, so are we going to have to do this? Are we going to have to do a blacklist? We've been trying to avoid this. Blacklisting will open us up to lawsuits from people who don't get hired, uh, so we have to do this secretly. This is really, you know, bad. Well, okay, we're gonna we're gonna do this. We're gonna do this blacklisting. So then there's all this documentation, all this um, correspondence between anti-communist activists like Lawrence Johnson, Jack Platt at Kraft, John Reber at J. Walter Thompson, um, as they debate who should and should not be on these blacklists. So Lawrence Johnson, the anti-communist activist, would send a letter saying, "Oh, well, you can't hire this person." Um, I'll have all of the supermarket retailers I know boycott craft products if you do this. And then you have a letter from Jack Platt uh, to J. Walter Thompson saying, you can't hire this person again um, because we're going to get boycotted. And then Mm -hmm. you have letters from John Reber at J. Walter Thompson saying, "Um, well, okay, but uh, this is an anthology program. By this time, it's craft television theater uh, that they're overseeing, and they're doing 
two shows a week. So they were producing 104 episodes a year because they didn't take summer breaks. And each episode had a different cast. And J. Walter Thompson was in charge of casting every single one of those episodes. And so they had... It's an enormous uh, amount of work. Yes, it's, it's absolutely mind-boggling. And it was live when you think yeah. about it. And they did the commercials live as well. So um, John Reber then would argue with Jack Platt about who should be on this name checklist. And so I have this fascinating um, correspondence in which John Reber is writing letters about people like Walter, Walter Matthau, Ossie Davis, Lee Grant, um, and arguing about whether or not they should remain on the list. And John Reber actually makes this um, interesting argument, interesting case, where um, he's accusing Johnson of putting anybody on the list who opposes blacklisting. So for example, Lee Grant was an actress who vocally came out against blacklisting, and then she was blacklisted for that. Simply for opposing the practice, not yes. not for any association. Or... Well, she did have a friend who was a communist. Oh, well, <laughs> yeah, right. Oh. right, so John Reber uh, constantly argued, saying, you know, okay, well, blacklist somebody who we can document is a CP member, but all of these people who just simply have objected to blacklisting, yeah. it's really unfair to blacklist them. And Larry Johnson, the activist, is clearly attacking these people precisely because, um, you know, they're trying to undermine his effort to get people blacklisted, mm -hmm. not because they're communists. And right. so there's this interesting back and forth. And so after one of these 13-page memos, um, I found a memo in which Jack Platt did agree. He says, okay, you know, you can take Lee Grant off the list and some of these other so people. Yeah, uh, but, you know, but then they maintained the rest of the list. So there were a number of people who I went and looked. Um, so there was this one woman who um, was on the list because she had um, objected to blacklisting, but she never did get on did get cast on um, craft television theater. And I found a memo like in 1957, 1958 um, from the head of the legal department saying, you know, she's still on the list and she really shouldn't be, you know, but, but, you know, uh, she, like, of course, nobody uh, should have been on the list, <laughs> right, but that's, that's a, that's a separate course, conversation. Of course. So, and, so these internal debates though, reveal a lot to us, not oh, just, fascinating. not yeah. just about their own ambivalence about how and why the justifications of what they're doing. So they were writing letters to each other about how, well, this is America. We can't convict people, you know, in these secret trials. Mm -hmm. And as an ad agency, we actually, we're not investigators. We can't really know, you know, the truth of anything. Um, so this is un-American for us to do this, but this, so, so, um, the head of the legal department was interviewed by John Cogley, um, for his book called Blacklisting on Radio and Television. And he said, oh, well, we only use publicly available sources. So in other words, if somebody appeared in a, in a news article right. declaiming themselves as a communist or, 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 or supporting Paul Robeson, <laughs> For example, right. um, sure. then, whose then, passport was seized right. and became a very prominent. Right. Oh. Then, then that person, you know, would get blacklisted. But but otherwise, if they were just in a play with other communists, which happened mm -hmm. to like Hugh Hugh, um, Hugh Cronin, for example, was in a play. Uh, also happened to um, it happened to several actors where they were in plays with with people who were declared communists, and then they were getting blacklisted in the fifties, um, like fifteen years later. Um, so you've 
so, pretty conclusively debunked that particular bit of mythology. Oh, no, they, they were being blacklisted, but John Reber was trying to get them off the blacklists. So, but so, debunking the, the mythology that, that they only used public sources and it was right. only in response to um, documented activities. Right. So statements. In, in fact, what they did a lot was um, Johnson and his colleagues, including people like Vincent Hartnett, would collect information and mail mm -hmm. it to the agency and the sponsor. And Hartnett had something called File 13. And again, this is one of these secret documents that I haven't seen much mention about in, in the literature. File 13 was his follow-up on Red Channels. And he would continually mm -hmm. document you know, the communist or proto-communist activities of different um, actors and writers and mail it to the agencies. And so the agencies then would use that um, as the evidence for whether or not to blacklist. So if somebody wasn't in file 13, then maybe they could be cleared. And But if they were in file 13, um, then they had a really hard time clearing themselves. So in this one case, um, uh, I, John Reber was proposing that this one actor be told that he was being blacklisted and be allowed to clear himself. Mm -hmm. But that was nixed, because if you let somebody know that they weren't being hired, um, because of these political associations, that person then had grounds for a lawsuit. And so they were in this bind where John Reber wanted to let the guy come and clear himself. But in order to let him come and clear himself, he had to be notified that he was, you know, being blacklisted. And so they couldn't do that because they didn't want the legal exposure. So God, the whole thing is just such a monstrous, catastrophic failure of any kind of, I mean, it's just... So, so part of, part of what I'm trying to say in all of these stories is that there was this larger political context, which I think has mm -hmm. been really well studied, and the Hollywood blacklist I think has been really well uh, understood for um, you know a long time. But the broadcast the relationships are clearer at least, right. right? When you've got the studios as as kind of the central organizing uh, authority, right? They were the they were the institution, whereas in broadcasting you had the sponsors, the networks, and the ad agencies. And all three of those institutions were blacklisting, and they were all in conflict, and they were all in internal debate. And so it was a much messier, more complicated, and actually more secretive process, precisely because it was less centralized. Right. Um, in fact, the ad agencies themselves you know, wouldn't talk to each other about it because they didn't want to be caught up on a conspiracy charge. And so there were these memos in which someone at J. Walter Thompson would say, well, you know, BBDO hired this person, and they've got Jack Wren over there, and he must have cleared them. Therefore, we should be able to hire them, even though he's on our list. But we can't, we can't go and ask BBDO why they cleared him, right? Because we can't expose the fact that we're also blacklisting him, right? So, so even within these institutions, the secrecy, uh, you know, was it top-level secrecy? And just one more thing, they actually had a special committee uh, made up of J. Walter Thompson executives, craft executives, and people in the broadcast industry who are unnamed. And this special committee would go through lists of names and vet people, and they'd say, oh, that person just happens to have some friends who are communists. They're not really communists. Or they'd say, oh, yeah, that person's been an activist. And this secret committee um, was run by Jack Platt at Kraft Cheese. And this is one of these things that I never found in any other literature, that these, these committees, these these intra-institutional committees actually existed. And I thought this was also really an important piece of how this all worked. It's incredibly important. And of course, there's the central irony that 
this entire process is being cooked up in order to mitigate the threat of an of an authoritarian, centralized, totalitarian <laughs> information control and political control system. I think that's the one, the most wonderful irony of it. I mean, they they have conducted their own. They've they've created their own kind of Stalinist ideological. Um, censorship board, right? Yeah, and that's actually one of the ironies, too, with the Communist Party in the United States as well, because their own Stalinism uh, undermined any liberal support that they had had mm -hmm. in the past. So by the time the, the post-war Red Scare comes along, they had entirely alienated most of their former liberal allies. And a number of historians have talked about how it was really the liberals, like Truman, uh, but also I see this in the ad industry and the broadcast industry, the people who really were attached to what they believed were liberal ideals of free speech and, you know, um, political freedom were the ones who felt most threatened by the U.S. Communist right. Party right. because of those, the Stalinist tactics that Communist Party had used directly against liberals themselves. Um, and so it's one of those kind of ironies to me, um, which it's harder for people to remember that now because we look back and we can just say, oh, the poor Communist Party members, you know, they were so, um, uh, you know, that was so unjust that their political associations um, um, resulted in these terrible things. But there's this whole dynamic that, that led up to that. And part of that dynamic was the complete collapse of trust between potential allies and the Communist Party. Wow. Strange times indeed. You've done so much important work here in unpacking these relationships. I'm looking forward to seeing the next chapter of this. Great, thanks. This is, this is really fascinating. Um, I'm mindful of your time, so we probably ought to wrap up, but um, <laughs> I've, this is really remarkable work, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about it. Well, thanks for having me, and I hope that um, my, my major goal in life is to um, help people understand better the role of the ad industry and how all of these things played out, not just in blacklisting, but in the entire history of broadcasting and in media in general, and that people will spend more time and effort to kind of find some more of these stories out there because there's lots of them out there. Yeah, there's a paper trail waiting to be discovered. Mm -hmm. Set to find those secret boxes. <laughs> yes. Those are the good ones. <laughs> the secret ones, yes. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. Thanks, Michael. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. We could have talked for hours. I mean, it's it's such a fascinating period, and it's such a fascinating issue. Yeah, the history there is just really great, and it's got to be really fun for her as a historian to rifle through all that. And then also, I follow her on Twitter. We'll link to her Twitter on our um, website, aka-media.org. And she jumps into a lot of conversations with contemporary journalists and, and TV critics to let them, or to force them to reflect on history and what it means to us today. So especially things like moving more toward branded content and product integration. And she always jumps in and says, well, yeah, wait a minute, let me tell you about the 50s and 60s. Yeah. I love the way that she acts as this historical corrective on a lot of assumptions she does, about today. She's really great. Her Twitter handle is at Ann Hummert, referencing the, right. the great... Uh, uh, radio producer mm -hmm. and TV producer. Um, 
And she does a really terrific job of, yeah, talking about contemporary media industry stuff, but then linking it back to uh, historical issues. Plus, she also posts some really, really great ads and images. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's, she, a, that's a she's good, a top ten. Th- yeah, that's a benefit of following, uh, you know, a historian who does a lot of research. They're going to give you little gems. Yeah, along the way, they're good. It's such a complicated issue, too, though. You know, I um, once you get beyond that particular moment and the and the um, and the really intense politics of the Red Scare, there is a longer history that uh, I think still needs to be explored and that we can continue to, to talk about, about essentially um, industry anxieties about performers' politics. And it doesn't always cut the same way politically, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we've got... Um, we now think of consumer citizenship as being uh, kind of central to our political identities in many in many circumstances you know our ability to speak up as a consumer is sometimes at least as influential as our ability to speak up um, and vote <laughs> um, and sometimes the the politics become kind of flip-flopped right I mean we right. have uh, consumer and corporate boycotts and responses to things like the uh, North Carolina legislation um, we've got responses to companies like chick-fil-a and as awkward as it is to connect those kinds of um, responses to controversial political statements or ideologies to the activities of the TV networks and sponsors during the Red Scare, I think I think that's a conversation we probably should have. Yeah, definitely. Um, and you mentioned this idea of you know, like this feeling of power, it's, there's something so sad as we come upon this chance to vote that for many of us, our only feeling of power is I'm not going to buy a chicken sandwich at Chick-fil-A or, you know, like there's such frustration that, you know, consumerism is now an actual realm in which we feel like, oh, I have political power there, which is also a very sad fact. Right. And of course it, that excludes, uh, it essentially excludes from the, from the political process, those who don't have that kind of consumer power. Right, exactly, which then puts us back in the same boat <laughs> that we're, you know, yeah. oftentimes that we're, we're, we're frustrated with. Not a great boat. No, and here we are back again. Then This is our horror episode, right? This is our the scary terrors of, of late October, early November. So we, we've at least hit the theme of our annual scary episode. <laughs> So you're welcome, listeners. Yeah, good times. Which actually Will Brooker commented, uh, the Cinema Journal editor Will Brooker commented on his Facebook about our last episode. We, you know, when we were talking, it was after Chuck's interview and, and we were Chuck Tryon's interview and we were kind of despondent. And he said he'd never heard podcast uh, hosts that despondent. I think he even said since 9-11, which, wow. yeah, I, you know, sorry, Will. Let's, we should, we need a happy song now, something yeah. like that. So come back next month for our postmortem. <laughs> right. For more joys. Well, Susan Omer is a very chipper, happy person. So I if guarantee she can, if you. If she can find a silver lining to this, if anyone can find a silver lining to this particular cloud, she'll do it. Exactly. So No Susan pressure, Omer. though. No, no pressure, Susan. But she, she, can, she can live up to it. We'd really like to thank our contributors to this episode, in particular, Sangeet Kumar and Kurt Combe at Denison University, as well as Cynthia Myers at Mount St. Vincent. And we'd also like to thank Bill Kirkpatrick at Denison University um, and the Department of Communication for giving us some funding to help keep this podcast going. As well as to uh, ISLA at the University of Notre Dame for their support. 
and SCMS. And we also want to give our, our usual shout out to Todd Thompson. We should also point out, because I don't think we usually do, um, in addition to producing the podcast, Todd also composes all of the music. So in addition to the theme song you hear every time, there's the little interstitial bits, and he almost every time changes up, does a little bit different thing. And um, so if you're a fan of that, you are a fan of Todd Thompson's work. And finally, thank you to our co-conspirators, Joel Neville Anderson at University of Rochester and Stephanie Brown at University of Illinois. Couldn't do it without their help. Yes, indeed. Um, final thought, if you have any questions or comments for us, you can send them to our email address, info at aka-media.org. We are a podcast as well. Feel free to send us a voice memo. If you want to uh, you know, uh, send a message, give us a, a shout-out to something, feel free to record a voice memo and send it to us. Yell at us in the car. Pick up, you know, tell your phone to have Siri call us and send us a note. There you go. That's an idea. This, well, this is starting to turn into a Black Mirror episode. Oh, now we're taking yeah, a dark turn again. Well, it's the, there are a lot of dark <laughs> corners, so there are going to be some dark turns. Well, there is an episode also about getting likes, and we have gotten some reviews. We've gotten some reviews, some ratings on iTunes, but still no reviews. We've gotten five-star ratings, so someone likes us, but still Thank no you. actual words written out. So feel free to write out some words. Put it in words. Use your words. All right. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.